You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out about the American NICE. There was a strong contingent that was hoping that it would have an explicit authority to look at cost effectiveness and value, which didn't end up in the final version. We'll also hear about how carers for dementia sufferers can be supported in some of the difficult decisions they have to make. Should my mother have her her cataracts done, for example? Should my husband have his knee operation? Mm -hmm. Taking the burden of of making those decisions Mm -hmm. for people. First of all, comparative effectiveness in the USA. Comparative effectiveness is at the centre of evidence-based healthcare. And in the USA, President Obama's healthcare reforms included the creation of a $500 million patient-centred outcomes research institute. I'm joined by Sean Tunis, the Executive Director of the Centre for Medical Technology Policy in Baltimore. Sean, could you tell us a little bit about what your organisation does? Uh, sure. Uh, we're an independent, non-profit organization. Our work is really around trying to move clinical research to being more relevant and timely from the perspective of end users, uh, specifically patients and clinicians and payers. Sure. Now that, along with your former role as Chief Medical Officer for Medicare and Medicaid, kind of makes you well qualified to answer questions that we have about this new uh, institute that's being set up. So this new institute has kind of had a a painful birth, you could say. It's been dogged by opposition throughout. Could you just set out for us how it was envisaged originally and how, after the compromises that have had to be made, um, how it looks now? Sure. Well, I think perhaps the core of what the early supporters of the institute were hoping for actually did come through in the final version and in the sense that it's a substantial amount of funding, new funding, for comparative effectiveness research. What I think is perhaps the key ways in which the original vision wasn't enacted is that many people hope the organization would have some ability to make clinical recommendations, that it would have some ties into coverage and reimbursement somewhat more similar to the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. There was a strong contingent that was hoping that it would have an explicit authority to look at cost effectiveness and value, which didn't end up in the final version. Okay. Now, I mean, this might be a very UK-centric perspective, but comparative effectiveness is at the, the heart of best practice, which is a good thing. And it's also at the heart of keeping control on the cost of healthcare, which in these financial straightened times, you know, is really important. It makes you wonder who the opposition to this were and what their opposition was really based on. Yeah, the, um, there were probably several key opponents, you know, some who had vested economic interests and some, you know, who had sort of genuine concerns. So in the in the realm of genuine concerns, I think patients and consumers, you know, really do have anxiety about government controlled, you know, decision clinical decision making. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the discomfort with that seems to be stronger in the US than it is in the UK. Yeah. Uh, an organization like NICE in the United States that, you know, genuinely had sort of uh, thumbs up or thumbs down decision making about things like cancer drugs mm-hmm. wouldn't stand a chance of coming into existence in the U.S. The 
you know, the second perhaps large opposition really is the um, the pharmaceutical and medical device industry and to some degree the entire medical services industry, which sees the, the demand of having to demonstrate that their services are in fact better than what exists before they would be adopted or paid more handsomely was felt to be and it probably is an additional burden compared to what is uh, required now. Yeah, sure. Now, you know, you talk about two groups there, clinicians and patients, and then the people who, pharmaceuticals, device makers. And obviously there's a third in healthcare, which are the people that, that pay for it, so insurance companies in the U.S. How did they uh, react to it? Well, I think this, the insurance companies, um, both the public sector ones, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, yeah. the private payers, um, we're early and very strong supporters of uh, of the institute. In general, they were strongly pushing to have you know the authority to look at cost effectiveness. In the current situation of how much we're spending on healthcare, we just have to be able to look at you know value. Yes. What's value for money? It, it was almost as if the the support from the health plans was conditional. Uh, the institute being given that explicit authority. Mm-hmm. And. The second thing that they were strongly opposed to was any language, you know, in the law that would restrict payers from using the information to make coverage and pricing decisions. Yep. And there was a, a huge amount of debate, uh, you know, and, and, and wordsmithing about the language related to how the information produced by the Institute could or couldn't be used by payers. And that's come down on the side of they are allowed to, to use that, but they have to be open in the way in which they do it. Exactly. That was uh, a sort of compromise language was mm-hmm. allowed to consider the information in the context of all the other available information and it had to be done in a, an open and transparent way. Sure. Now we've already mentioned NICE a little bit and obviously they um, look at cost effectiveness as well as comparative effectiveness um, and you've already said that the the new institute won't do that. What will it look at, though? I mean, are we talking here about pharmaceuticals or devices or wider-ranging, like, surgical techniques? Yeah, the scope of uh, topics that the Institute will be looking at is quite broad, and uh, it it's clearly includes pharmaceuticals, medical devices, surgical procedures, uh, diagnostics, both kind of molecular biomarker-type diagnostics, mm-hmm. imaging, etc., but also kind of health services interventions, for example, quality improvement programs, disease management, even, uh, say, telemedicine services. So not just, you know, kind of clinical technologies, but organization of care and strategies of care. Now, the way in which those are going to be studied, obviously they'll take into account existing evidence. But there's also a budget for primary research as well. Do you know how that's going to be parceled out at all? Is it going to go um, to existing labs or, or are there new sort of institutions going to be created? Um, I mean, a lot of the existing research enterprise, academic institutions, uh, some private sector organizations, et cetera, will be, you know, receiving the funding. Mm-hmm. Presumably, you know, a lot more uh, small and new research organizations will come into being to, uh, as a result of some of the new funding. So opposition to the Institute was quite fierce, but now it's got through. Is it going to be plain sailing from now on? Um, there are still a lot of hard feelings and uh, skepticism and perhaps a bit of paranoia about this Institute yep. that will 
quickly resurface as soon as the board is appointed in September and it gets up and running. So job number one is going to be being very conscientious about calming the fears of the public. When people hear the words cost-effectiveness, they think of rationing or enough of them to make it problematic. And when they think of rationing, they think of, you know, withholding life-saving services from people because they're old or disabled. That's the political kind of reality, right? We never managed to get over the political debate around why looking at cost-effectiveness is not the same thing as rationing health care, that this is really intended to empower people with the information that they need. And, you know, it's going to be setting up mechanisms to make sure that they have ways of finding out what it is that the public wants to know. And um, so that I think that's, you know, if they, and, I, and I think they, the, the people that are sort of guiding the development and, uh, you know, the early development are, are aware of those things. So I think, uh, and it's been become part of the, you know, the ongoing discussion. So I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that they're going to start off in the right place. Great. Well, thanks very much for explaining that to us, Sean. And you can read Sean's analysis now on bmj.com. Now, Berta Twisman finds out about caring for people with dementia. A paper published online on bmj.com this week looks at decisions faced by family members or friends who have taken on the role of carers for people with dementia, specifically what helps or hinders the decisions they have to make. I'm joined in the studio by Claudia Cooper, Senior Clinical Lecturer in Old Age Psychiatry in the Department of Mental Health Sciences at University College London. Hello, Claudia. Hello. So, Claudia, why did you decide to look at this? We designed the study, really, because um, relatives of people with dementia who we spoke to were telling us how very difficult it was being in the situation of being the decision-maker for people with dementia. We therefore designed this, which is the first study, really, to ask actually ask family carers about their experiences of making decisions. OK, can you take us through your study, please? What you did and what you found. We spoke to family carers of people with dementia from who we recruited from primary care and from secondary care. And this is really a, a, a two-phase study. Um, this is a study led by, led by Jill Livingston. And in the first study, we asked carers in groups what problematic decisions family carers for people with dementia needed to make for them. Can I, can I just ask mm, briefly, sure. what, what kind of decisions, what, what, what decisions would they be on? Well, we were very concerned. We wanted to be very open in terms, and we wanted to listen to what family carers were telling us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we were deliberately didn't direct it towards okay. any particular decisions. Okay. So it was an organic process. What kind of things did they tell you they found difficult? First of all, it was the difficulty in deciding whether to involve health and social services in yeah. the first place. So the family care was, was suspecting that there might be a problem. When do you involve those services? And they found that tremendously difficult. Secondly, um, healthcare decisions in areas other than dementia. Should um, my mother have her, her cataracts done, for example? Should my husband have his knee operation? Mm-hmm. Taking the burden of, of making those decisions mm-hmm. for people. 
And then there were the financial um, decisions and legal decisions, such as should we get power of attorney. Mm. Um, driving came up quite a bit, decisions about whether the person should still be driving. Um, whether the time had come to, that the person should move to a, to a care home or whether they should stay in their own home. Mm-hmm. And finally, many carers were concerned about what they should put in place in case they were no longer able to care. Having identified those five main areas, we then asked some of the same carers who'd been in the groups and some other carers who'd actually made those decisions. Okay. And we talked to them one-on-one in in some depth about it and really asked, as you were saying earlier, about um, what had helped and what had hindered. Mm -hmm. And from that, we produced a guide, which is actually available on on bmj.com, for carers who might face the situation of making these decisions in future. So it's directly based on participants' input. Yes, directly based, and with many of the of the the quotes and direct words that that the carers had used. I mean, certainly there were some overarching themes really that came mm-hmm. came out in all the decisions. A lot of the carers talked about the difficulty of being the family member, being the daughter, but also being the sort of patient manager trying to make these the, these decisions and, and the, the, the tension um, between those roles. And one of the things about dementia um, is, of course, in many cases people don't have insight. And so there was this difficulty as well of trying to make these decisions with the active resistance of the person with dementia who who often didn't feel that there was anything wrong or that it was necessary and whilst in you know in in many cases the the carer may have had the legal authority to make that decision on behalf of the person with dementia from a practical point of view they almost always talked about needing to find ways to seek the agreement Mm. of of the person with dementia and so they developed various strategies to, to do that, such as talking about going along to the GP together. Um, one gentleman told us about when he was making power of attorney for his wife, um, that he suggested that they both do it together for each other. Mm-hmm. So making it not necessarily just about, about the person with dementia. It was quite common for people to talk about using the authority of the doctor or the healthcare mm-hmm. professional. Mm-hmm. So one man said, if you put doctor in the sentence, my wife will, will do it. Um, and really emphasising to the person that the help that they were trying to get for them would help them to be independent mm-hmm. rather than impede their their independence. I was wondering how widely applicable the findings of your study are. We, we really sought to um, recruit a broad range of carers because we want our results to be as, as generalisable as possible. And how did you ensure that it was a wide range? Right, OK. We... Um, recruited from primary care as well as secondary care, mm-hmm. which is important because mm-hmm. not everybody is referred on to secondary care. And we sought to ensure that people were representative in terms of the ethnicity of the mm-hmm. person they're looking after, the gender and the care setting, whether or not they were living independently or whether they were in a care home. And we spoke to people at different phases of Mm -hmm. of dementia. So we spoke to some carers of people with mild dementia and we spoke to some carers who were were bereaved, who who had been looking after somebody with dementia for a long time. And so because of that, we, we think that our results are 
are widely generalizable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, one of the limitations is that we only recruited people who were caring for somebody identified as having dementia. Right. And we know from other research that many people with dementia are never diagnosed. Mm. And it's likely that the carers of somebody who doesn't have a diagnosis may well be having a different experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one thing, the carers we spoke to had all sought health and social care support in order to have an official diagnosis. So it might be that people without work were coping differently and mm-hmm. making decisions differently. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, as Claudia said, if you think one of your patient's carers would benefit from some advice about how to make decisions, the leaflets they created are available on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back finding out about the legal requirements to get full consent for blood transfusions. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.